This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Katie Rich. I'll be here with the usual roundtable of Richard Lawson, Rebecca Ford, and David Canfield. And then later on, we are going to have our Oppenheimer book club about American Prometheus with special guests Aaron Vanderhoof and David Sims. But before any of that, we really have to talk about the main topic in Hollywood, the strike. Uh, Everything in Hollywood is more or less shut down. Um, There are very attractive people on picket lines, which I believe Franklin Leonard came on a few weeks ago and said as a scenario that the studios would avoid at all costs, but we're in it. Um, The state of confusion in the industry, I think, is really high, and especially for the people who we're talking to this time of year as festival season looms. Um, We've been on some calls, David and Rebecca and I, with studio reps uh, in the last couple of days, and... I really can't overstate how much no one seems to know what's going on. Does that that sound about right? It's just a comical shrug emoji. It's just (laughs) from some of the most powerful studios in the country. It's really something. I mean, so usually the Toronto Film Festival lineup comes out about next week is the timing to expect. We know the Venice lineup is coming next week. Um, And Rebecca, you've been on these calls as well. Like, we just don't know if films are going to start dropping out. We don't know if they're going to be able to promote themselves if they stay in the lineup. Like, we don't know anything, right? I think it, it's probably going to play out really festival by festival. There are some that are much more dependent on talent appearances than others. Um, but I, yeah, I agree. It just feels like nobody knows what to do. And I, we have to assume there are a lot of stressed out meetings happening uh, at the <laughs> studios right now where people are, you know, just really frustrated and and not sure what move to make because these are expensive decisions to make. You know, a lot of these studios reserve those rooms at festivals a year in advance and and have a lot of money put into those uh, experiences. Yeah, I think we've seen, you know, quotes in other places, the effect that like when you bring your movie to Venice, it's because you can have your stars in a gondola like Zendaya and Challengers, which is currently slated to, I don't know if it's the opening night at Venice, but it's slated to be there. If it, if you're at Venice and you don't have Zendaya there wearing something beautiful, like, are you getting the payoff that you were hoping for? I, I think no matter how good that movie is, I'm not sure that they will get what they bargained for there. Well, I don't know. I mean... Critics' reviews from festivals are the most important thing in the entire Hollywood ecosystem, Katie. Well, so, your like, reviews uh, specifically, actually. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, there is a small part of me that's, like, a little indignant where it's, like, people can still review them. Like, you know, there'll still be coverage of the movies. But the fact of the matter is, is that festival coverage is, yes, centered on reviews to some extent, but there's so much ancillary stuff around it. And not even, like, lesser stuff. I mean, like, laterally, next to reviews are interviews and um, you know, other things involving talent, party reports, obviously photo is a huge component of that. And so my hope selfishly would be that studios say like, well, I guess we'll just save money and not fly people out, but we'll still send the movie because we can at least get some hopefully good um, review press or whatever. But yeah, I don't know, maybe more realistically, um, an American studio wouldn't see the the benefit of even bothering at all, because like, what if the reviews are mixed, then you don't have any other coverage to balance that out. Especially with a place like Venice, it's often a place where you have movies that might not land <laughs> as uh, comfortably with critics. Uh, in last year's case, Blonde, The Whale, Don't Worry Darling, that can still gin up a lot of attention. And I guess in Don't Worry Darling's case, I wouldn't call it positive buzz, but certainly buzz. Well, but the joy we had of Chris Pine and Harry Styles sitting in a row together, that was the most important thing about that movie being in Venice. Yeah, and like, I I think it's hard to argue that that 
whole saga <laughs> um, was a net benefit for the movie, like box office wise, and in terms of it actually having a, a decent opening weekend, which it did. And obviously, the whale uh, was one of the best successes of last year commercially among art houses, and Blonde had a much better launch out of Venice than I think anyone was expecting, and that ran all the way to an Oscar nomination for Ana de Armas. So it does matter, I think, a great deal in a festival like that to present that kind of environment uh, that's really hospitable for talent and glamour and for the movie's quality to not take a back seat because movies have certainly sunk at Venice. The Sun also premiered there, let's not forget. <laughs> um, but to sort of balance it out a little bit and you're not going to get that balance. So I do feel like the movies that will be affected this is a leap, but are probably the movies that are, are people are not as confident in. Um, because to Richard's point, for most movies, these are still incredibly important launch pads for, you know, titles with smaller audiences, more niche audiences, um, and awards ambitions. And I don't think that calculation changes that much. I think it's more about the commercial prospects of these movies. Um, and Venice can overlap quite a bit in that. So, like, Dune premiered at Venice, but maybe now Dune 2 isn't as likely to want that yes, launch pad. Yes, that's a perfect example. All I right. feel like that the uh, if there are American studio films that are affected by these particular strikes, if there are ones that have already been selected for the Venice competition, I feel like that wouldn't really be great to pull out because then you're alienating the, dire the director, potentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the festival, which like you might want to come back again the next yeah, year. Yeah, and like Venice, you know, is a is it's not just American films. Obviously, it's international, so they will have a lineup. You know, even if every American studio film, any struck studio pulls out of the festival, like they'll still have a lineup. But my hunch would be that like Bradley Cooper, if Maestro is going to be there, for example, wouldn't want to totally pull out of the festival because he can't go. Um, yep. Because that's a big moment for him, as Star Wars, Star Wars Born was at Venice um, five years ago. Like, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, again, I'm probably just speaking from my own, you know, I don't want to cancel this trip kind of thing. <laughs> but um, I am prepared to if I must. But um, yeah, I just think when they're in competition, but yes, the out of competition stuff that's just there to kind of start their, um, the next phase of their marketing campaign um, that's a different story. And I don't know what was planned for Venice. I mean, I guess we weren't, we're not going to find out till next week, but like something like Dune 2, I don't see the, the, the reason to, to show that movie there, um, because it wouldn't be competing. I don't think. Do you think it's just a coincidence that the Venice, um, jury is like 90% directors this year? Is it, or do you think they knew ahead of time? <laughs> like we better... heavy hitters too. I know it's an like... incredible lineup. Chazelle, Jane Campion, Mia Hansen Love, but, and Martin McDonough. But do you think they did it on purpose? Cause they knew that? that's how I read it. Yeah. yeah. Is they were Smart. like, let's not take the chance that we have to like replace a jury member, even though an actor, a, a member of SAG who's on the Venice jury is usually not promoting a specific project. It's that's yeah, not how the juries work. They'd be allowed to do that, wouldn't they? Yeah. It might be a solidarity I, thing. I mean, it'd yeah. probably be more of a choice, I guess, on their part. Well, we had a similar question about Bradley Cooper and the Maestro example. Like, if that movie were to premiere at Venice and he were to attend as a director only, like, that's a real fuzzy line since he is the star of that movie also. But, you know, the SAG rules have been a little clearer than the WGA rules, I think, in terms of what they can do. But there's still a lot of uh, lack of clarity there. Well, one thing that is clear is you can't fly talent out. Uh, the studio cannot fly talent out. And mm. so I, I would imagine something like that would apply to Bradley Cooper, even if he can represent the film as a filmmaker. So all these questions get really blurry. And, you know, we could talk about Telluride, which I think rightly has been identified as a festival that will, will be affected less. But there still is that question of how do the actors get there? I think Bradley what... can buy his own ticket. I just, I'm going to throw that out there. Well, he can. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly can. Um, but how like the order of operations will have to change for these yes. studios. Uh, and then there's just the question of how you present yourself as a member of the Guild. Because I think the Guild has made quite clear the less you do – even, you know, when it's a little bit fuzzier, the more in solidarity you appear with us. Um, I think that's a pretty clear message that's been sent. I, I, I can't imagine Bradley Cooper using like the Delta app to book a flight. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're all, everyone has to suffer in this strike, Richard. We all need to do things we're not comfortable with. 
Uh, so let's talk about Telluride. David and Rebecca, you guys are still planning to be there. Neither of you has offered to cancel your trip heroically the way that Richard has. Um, but I think with good reason. <laughs> oh, I see. But, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> huh? Let's see who's in solidarity oh, for real in, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so you were saying, David, how it, it feels like it's less likely to be affected. Um, Rebecca, do you just want to kind of explain why? Yeah, I mean, Telluride is a very casual festival. They don't do red carpets. There's, you know, there's everyone's in jeans and shirts and act very normal. So it it doesn't have that (laughs) and hats, yeah, big hats. It doesn't have that um, sort of fashion and style aspect that the other two festivals that we're talking about do. And um, while, of course, there are actors there, often at least one actor is given sort of the tributes. There's a handful of tributes every year. They could easily pivot that to just be directors. Um, so it doesn't have that sort of level of uh, actor participation. Um, obviously, it'd be a bummer if there are no actors there because they still do Q&As and things like And we do interviews with them on the ground there. But the festival is really about seeing the movies and sort of the experience of Telluride. So it doesn't have that same requirement as um, Venice or Toronto do. So I, I see that one being able to go forward. I mean, they it is a day longer this year. So I assume they were envisioning a pretty packed schedule with lots of exciting appearances. So I'm sure there's some shifting going on, but I think it's still worthwhile for the, the type of people who go to that festival to go. I was just thinking about last year when you guys kept seeing Paul Mescal all, all around the festival, even though I don't think After Sun was playing there, or at least he it was, was like... It was a oh, secret okay. screening. Okay, yeah. so, but he was there seeing other movies. I'm just imagining some actor, um, I don't know, like someone like someone from Asteroid City wanting to like jumpstart their campaign, just like buying a ticket to tell you right. It happened to be around town, not promoting their movie. It's uh, There's a method there. Yeah, there absolutely is. And it happens every year. I mean, you'll see actors there who don't... Um, necessarily have a project there. Alexander Payne has been known to go uh, in off years, and he does have a movie coming out this year. That, yes, we should talk about uh, that. Yeah, um, but there are many movies uh, to what we were talking about earlier, where my question would be, what is the alternative? Like, if you don't take your movie to Telluride, it's not like you can sit on all these movies for a year. Mm-hmm. And how else are you going to launch it? I'm not really sure that there's an answer for studios that especially though, I mean, Telluride's a pretty explicitly awards-focused festival at this point. So it is still the best launching pad you're going to get for a smaller movie that you want to, you know, start up that kind of conversation, that start that kind of excitement. So as far as I can tell, and I think this even applies to Venice and Toronto to an extent, uh, except for those bigger movies we were referring to, this is the best option you have. It's just a worse option than it was a week ago. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about about Toronto, which um, is many levels of magnitude bigger than Telluride in terms of the operations that studios bring. You know, they do full-on junkets. They have three days of press lined up. They have hundreds of hotel rooms booked. But, you know, Next Goal Wins is currently on the lineup to open there. Jojo Rabbit won the Audience Award in 2019 on its way to winning an Oscar. I think the value of that Audience Award is still pretty major to something like Next Goal Wins. And it's hard to imagine it, you know, that's a specific movie for TIFF, but I feel like a lot of movies might be willing to take that gamble of that level of um, of a platform, even if it's not what they're used to. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, I mean, I'm having my own qualms about it where it's like, I don't want to do anything that would seem to be like supporting studios over the people who are striking. That's not where I, <laughs> my sympathies lie certainly is not toward the studios, mm-hmm. but I think there has been some debate, certainly online, among like a lot of freelance critics being like, am I being a scab if I cover stuff? Am I be- would I be a scab if I went to a festival? And the presiding answer I seem to have seen from members of SAG online um, and NWGA as well uh, is like, no one is right now calling for a boycott of the work. And no one's saying you should cancel the streaming service or you should not see this movie. You shouldn't see Barbie. You shouldn't see Oppenheimer. Because in reality, like, the people involved in that film, many of whom are now on strike, probably still want you to see the work because they're proud of it. Or um, And maybe there isn't even a financial bottom line for them still, you know, in, in terms of the movie doing well and getting some back-end money or residual money or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I think I, we all have to kind of keep those ethics in mind, depending on how we feel about all of this. But uh, tentatively, I feel like there's a clear enough line saying that, like, 
festival coverage, like going to those things, supporting those movies, voting in the Toronto's People's Choice Award, whatever, like that all is okay because you are hopefully at root supporting the artists and not necessarily the studios. I don't think that people voting for the Toronto Award are necessarily like, oh, here's casting my ballot for Universal. You know, (laughs) that's not how it works. Yeah, we got a listener question from Stephen basically saying, what can we do to support? Should we cancel streaming services? And my understanding is the same as yours, Richard, that that's not what they're calling for. But I do think there's a bit des- a desire for people to want to support SAG. It'd be nice if, you know, SAG and the WGA could give um, moviegoers and consumers a little bit more information about what the right choices are. I know there's um, the Entertainment Community Fund, which uh, you can donate to, which is to support crew members that are out of work. So I think that's like one actual action people can take who have the uh, funds to do that, to support in that way. But yeah, I think, you know, if there's a sudden drop in subscribers and box office, it almost feels like that's more of an argument for the studios to be like, we don't have the money to give to you. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think that's the, the action anyone wants to take. One thing I, I will say is, uh, Katie, you mentioned we've been speaking to a few studios and Rebecca and I have also done some individual calls. And in my experience on the studio side, there is a real wishful thinking <laughs> really? it's uh, so element true. going on. Yeah. Um, and everyone else you talk to around the industry, it is the opposite. Mm-hmm. So there is a genuine part of me that's wondering how well prepared are certain folks for this? Because by all indications, this is not going to be resolved by Labor Day. Um and it doesn't feel like that reality is fully settled in for everybody yet, understandably. Um, but that does seem to be um, a bit of a diff- point of difference uh, between certain parties. I've been viewing that as just like their survival method. Because if they <laughs> Denial. acknowledge that this is going till September, October, November, like their brains will just turn off <laughs> is, my, is my current theory. And, and when you're talking about like art house distributors of, of movies for whom... This is, you know, number one, their season. Number two, movies that desperately need those kinds of launches in a pretty, you know, vulnerable market right now. It's understandable mm-hmm. that that may be the reaction. We should talk about the Emmys also with that Labor Day date in mind. Um, the nominations came out last week, hours before the strike began. That was a really wild period in our office in particular. Um, we haven't gotten any information yet about the ceremony being delayed, but I think everyone seems to agree it's inevitable. Um, it seems well. our understanding and tell me if I'm wrong is that voting will happen as it was scheduled to at the end of August. And then we'll just have to wait and find out the results. I don't think anybody likes this scenario, but it kind of seems like the only one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds that's that's what people seem to be saying. Um, it, it, it kind of reminds me of like, I don't know if you guys did this in school where you like put everything in a time capsule and buried it in the yard and then they were going to like <laughs> dig it up years later. Like, that's what I feel like is going to happen. We're going to be like, Huh, the bear <laughs> season one. Remember that? This yeah, so weird. Jeremy Allen White's going to win a SAG award for the bear season two, and then a week later he'll win an Emmy for the bear <laughs> season one, and time will collapse on itself. Yeah, it, it is the only option. I mean, it, it, it even thinking about it, it makes me feel slightly less insane about covering the Emmys to know that at least that calendar is the same, and we don't have to worry yeah. about like four months plus of phase two because obviously. We have been talking to strategists and studios about how to get the non-strike, the people who are not on strike and are nominated uh, featured. Uh, So that's going to happen. So there will be a huge lopsided you know, level of campaigning if they would extend the calendar, which I do not believe they will. Yeah. And it's kind of fun to talk to production designers and casting directors and things like that. So this is um, their moment. Yeah, we get the shine. Um. So we do need to talk about Barbenheimer and the, the looming moment of pop culture ahead of us. As we record this, we're we're a little bit of a mixed bag on who has seen what. Richard, you've seen both. No, you don't need to brag about it. You, it's fine. Um, on the I same think, day, by the uh, way. So the I did the way true. it was intended. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to have most of the in-depth conversations about the movies next week because uh, we do have our Oppenheimer book club coming in the back half of this episode. Um, but Richard, fresh from Barbenheimer, um, are these movies going to save the movies? Um, I think I think they're both going to be big in their own ways. I think Barbie is going to be. I mean, it's it's you know tracking to be a lot bigger than Oppenheimer um, on the same opening weekend. Uh, it's a lot more accessible. It's funny. It's bright. It has musical a musical number at least one, kind of two actually. Um, 
you know, it, it, I think it satisfies what people are hoping it is. I had some issues with the movie sort of, it's a very jumbled tone. The themes keep kind of shifting from the problem with Barbies to the problem with patriarchy, which are probably related to problems of just existence in general. I mean, there is a moment in the film where Barbie kind of meets God. Um, and I think that it hopefully in that scattershot approach, some people like me will be a little bit like, oh, I couldn't really get a hold on it. But other people, like there's a lot there for people to to hook onto who want to. So I think that movie will have a lot of like repeat viewing and, and, um, and, uh, you know, enthusiastic word of mouth. Um, Oppenheimer, I think is a tougher sell. As we know, it's three hours. It is a biopic about J. Robert Oppenheimer, which is not the sexiest thing. It's a very serious and important thing. But um, my t- early takeaway, and again, we'll talk about it more next week, um, is that I was surprised by how much more of a biopic of Oppenheimer it is than a movie about the making of the atom bomb. The atom bomb making is definitely a huge center part of the movie. But um, I would say the last maybe quarter of the film, is much more about what happened to Oppenheimer after that. And actually, that's sort of used as a framing device throughout the film. There's sort of a Sorkin-y kind of Molly's Game vibe with that, um, where it's oh like, okay, now tell us your story. Game, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, and I just, no. just came, to, came to the top of my mind right now. Um, and I think that's really interesting. It's really well acted. It looks great. I mean, Nolan films tend to look great. Um, the music is very propulsive and, and, and you know, helps, on, you know, undergird the sort of emotional stakes. But um, it is is a lot of people talking in rooms about terms and names that um, are are hard to kind of keep uh, all, you know, arrayed in your sort of like understanding of the movie. Um, so I think it's great that you're doing the book club this week, because um, I certainly wish that I had more of a familiarity with the story uh, before I saw the film, because it's a lot to kind of keep in order in your head. Rebecca, you got to see Barbie a little bit earlier. And from my conversations with you, it sounds like it's grown on you as time has passed on, which seems to me like a good sign for the movie. Yeah, it it really has. I mean, I agree with Richard. I think the thing I struggled with, especially in the first half, is there's a lot happening. And I don't think anyone's surprised to think Greta Gerwig had a lot of ideas she wanted to put into this. But it's such a blast. I I went to the premiere. I've never seen so much cosplay at a movie premiere. And I've been to Marvel and Star Wars movies. But literally everyone (laughs) was wearing pink and glitter and and just like squealing with excitement. And it was just like this is why people go to the movies is to have that kind of experience. And it really felt like the perfect uh, movie to do that. And I I just like left smiling ear to ear. So it's a, it's a really fun uh, theatrical experience. And I think even if people like me are sort of like, "Eh, for part of the movie, not sure how into it they are. There's a great final joke line in the movie that like sends you out of the theater being like, well, that was amazing, you know, and then maybe you think about it and you're sort of the questions arise again. But like, it, it's definitely as weird as it is. And as jumbled as it is, it's, it's a crowd pleaser that um, doesn't pander. You know, I think it is actually asking audiences to lean forward and engage with it, which, um, you know, is a lot more than we probably could have ever hoped for from a corporate branding exercise. (laughs) It might make $100 million opening weekend, which is not nothing at this point in the summer box office. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. 
Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So now I'm very excited to kick off our long-awaited, by me at least, uh, book club for the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, which is, of course, the basis for the movie Oppenheimer. It's written by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, who I believe have been on the campaign trail with Christopher Nolan this week. Uh, and joining me for this conversation, uh, David Canfield, still here, hanging out. Um, <laughs> hi, David. Hi, Katie. <laughs> uh, and then we have guests joining us, uh, two returning guests, very beloved, uh, Vanity Fair staff writer, Royals expert, Aaron. Aaron Vanderhoof. Hello, Aaron. Hi, Katie. Uh, and returning for the first time in a long while, I think, uh, the Atlantic's film critic and host of the Blank Check podcast, David Sims. Hi, David. Hi, Katie. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. We're going to manage with two Davids on one podcast, which, um, you know, is the, the the least of the problems facing anyone on this uh, episode, I think. Um, so this is a huge book to discuss. I really I did feel like asking anyone to come on being like, all right, are you willing to do this with us? Um, and I uh, and David Sims, you have seen Oppenheimer, the movie. You're the only one of us on here. Um, but I think we're going to we're going to aim not to spoil anything about the movie. Not that there's a whole lot to spoil, um, yes. I think. Right. Is there a giant spoiler you're going to be hiding from us throughout this conversation? <laughs> No, well, no, I suppose no. There's ways I could spoil <laughs> spoil the movie, but uh no, it's more about how to tell this story, uh, right? Yeah. Is is what's interesting about the book and and what how the movie does it. But yes, no, I won't I won't get into the movie in too much detail. Yeah. Um, I wanted to throw to Aaron first because I think, you know, the rest of us, we're movie people. We, a Christopher Nolan movie is a major event in our lives, but I would not assume as much for you, Aaron, but you do have a really particular tie to the events of this book. So, hey, I love a Christopher Nolan movie. I, I, you know, I like I like his work, but I am a New Mexican uh, by birth. My family, I was joking as I read this book that like my family is just like chatting off screen for a lot of it, Um, (laughs) even down to uh, they mentioned that Richard Feynman only agreed to come when his first wife, Arlene, could get taken into a sanatorium in Albuquerque. And my grandmother was actually at that sanatorium, though we're not sure if they overlapped. But to this day or, you know, till she died, my grandmother insisted she never had tuberculosis. She was just hungover, which doesn't make sense but i feel like it's a very new mexican thing to do i really wish that was in the book my god but uh so but yeah no i think that one of the things that is to me the most striking about robert oppenheimer as a person is just that he he is very recognizable to me as like a guy who comes from the east coast and goes like man i love just like how much it sucks here and how like it's beautiful (laughs) but i also starve myself every time i go out in the wilderness like i know that guy (laughs) that guy is my family and you know i i think that the 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 moral thing that you're always thinking about in this is like, okay, like we did some really terrible things with the military industrial complex, but also it's like built the entire Southwest. And like, how do we as New Mexicans kind of, you know, my my dad likes to joke, uh, I think the only good thing that came from the bomb is our family. And it's like, yeah. oh, I, don't, I don't know if you can really say that, but, <laughs> but, I, but there is a way in which that I think even more so than a triumph or a tragedy to this guy. He just was like so foundational in inventing the future for better or for worse uh, in the West, at least. That idea of inventing the future uh, feels so Christopher Nolan-y. And kind of one of the questions I wanted to start with all of you is like, is there a point in this book where you said, oh, I kind of get why this is a Christopher Nolan movie? On some level, for me, it's the cover where you look at the picture of Robert Oppenheimer and you're like, oh, that's Killian Murphy. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's all right there. But I wonder for any of you guys if there's something more specific where you kind of felt the movie come to life. I don't know if I had that moment. It was really this ongoing realization, discovery of the degree to which this was a character study and not a broader history of the period. Uh, and I was talking to Richard about that before we started recording the episode as a whole, because he had that reaction to the movie itself. And so I think it's helpful for me going into the movie, knowing that this was the approach of the book. And from what I understand, he he definitely tries to honor that, Christopher Nolan does. I was very like moved by it in a way that surprised me. And I was just incredibly taken with the level of detail, the level of narrative complexity in the way it tries to understand who this man was at 14 and who he was when he's in charge of this, you know, history shaping project. Um, So for me, it was just a discovery of what the book was that then I suppose indicated to me what kind of movie it could be. I just feel like the way 
it's talking about Oppenheimer pretty early on, like even young academic Oppenheimer as this sort of inscrutable, very at times charming, but also moody and mysterious, hard to get at, you know, sort of, you know, the theoretical problem. Like it just felt like such a Nolan protagonist, like to begin, you know, mm-hmm. kind of sexy, kind of scary. Exactly. <laughs> right. Where you're just like, that just sounds like the kind of frosty sort of weird protagonist that Nolan often <laughs> loves to put at the center of these very, very epic movies. Like, you know, guys like even like the Leonardo DiCaprio guy in Inception, like he's like a prickly jerk. He's just also, you know, <laughs> like some some sort of a dream genius or whatever he is. And like it just I just immediately imagined what Nolan sort of saw in this person as he's picking up this doorstop of a book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that to me, the the moment the moment where he gives his professor at Cambridge like poison, mm-hmm. you get this this I to me, I feel like that was the second where I was like, okay, I can understand why, you know, that this that clearly it's impossible to read the two hundred the first two hundred pages of this book and not be like, this is such a like singular, bizarre figure. And if anything, I I kind of think the first two hundred pages of the book, if it was just that, and then like, oh, you know, he had the idea, he he wrote about it on the chalkboard and then he never did anything else, like that would be a great <laughs> book. I would have really enjoyed that book. But um but yeah, I think that that yeah, that there is this like narrative arc of a person who thinks he's doing the the right thing at a lot of different moments in time and he's frequently not doing the best thing, but like he's atten- eventually like undone by forces shadowy forces that are way larger than him felt really like a Christopher Nolan plot to me. Okay, Aaron, you talk about the first 200 pages, which is a lot about like him as a character, but it's also where it gets incredibly dense into his communist ties and who he knew and which meetings he went to and who his neighbors knew, um, which is very important later in the story. And I'm really interested with, again, I don't want to hear too much about the movie and how a movie can deal with the Chevalier affair, which comes up over and over mm-hmm. again and is kind of like a petty drama, which is kind of the point. Like when you get to the HUAC hearings in the 50s, the fact that someone's life can be undone by something so small. Do it, Did any of you come away from that incredibly dense period of learning about his communist ties, feeling like it needed all of that? Did you feel clear on it? Or is the lack of clarity maybe the point? I think it's kind of the point. But uh, no, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that, you know, it's it's funny that there's this like narrative of this that I've gotten before and then before kind of learning a lot more about like the California Communist Party at the time. It, it's just very funny to look at this at through the eyes of like a government trying to prosecute whether or not he would like figure out for sure whether or not he was a communist, because I think that it speaks to something very, very Cold War era, Cold War mm-hmm. hangover that I think if you're a, if you're a person who's kind of looking at it in the broader strokes of wh- why is it that these people were drawn to these causes at this exact moment, like what was the broader economic happenings, the broader conversation that was in, like intellectual conversation that was happening outside of just the, you know, Berkeley faculty forum that Robert was running, it it really is kind of like very small potatoes. And I feel like it does a good job of, of like illustrating exactly how silly Cold War hysteria was, even though I think that throughout the book, that is definitely not the approach that Sherwin and Bird take. <laughs> well, it made me understand for the first time, like, why there were so many American communists in the 30s. Like, obviously, I knew communism was, like, taking over in Russia. But, like, I didn't get that, like, if you lived in Brooklyn today and, like, if you like if you're in a left leaning circle the way that you would be living in Brooklyn today, you'd be a communist like that. That's how close that tie was. This book was kind of the first time that became clear to me. Yeah, I think the book is so interested in understanding these kind of key biographical details of him as a young man, even as a child. And to your point, Katie, with how this all builds to a head, there's also just this question of like how these experiences shaped who this man was like. Mm -hmm a summer camp experience can be connected to something quite specific. Uh, There's a really great scene in the book where he's in an elevator with Joseph McCarthy and there's, there's a wink uh, in in this scene. And and it almost feels like the book winking at us a little bit as well, to your point about the complexity and at times confusion around these questions. I don't think the book is afraid of that at all. And I, I agree with David S. that I think that there's a level of intentionality there. 
Yeah, I think they're trying to represent that this was a time when if you especially travel in these academic circles, you know, you're going to parties, you're going to be mixing with all kinds of people and all kinds of radical ideas. Like that you would almost have to be taking a very Puritan lockdown approach to your social life in a way to, to be like, well, I'm not, I don't associate with, you know, X, Y, and Z. I think the great mystery of Oppenheimer later that these, you know, sort of mock trials, you know, these ridiculous things are are trying to unravel is like, how much did you care about this? Mm-hmm. Which is hard to understand, uh, you know, hard to, for even an incredibly dense uh, biography like this to really unravel a hundred ish years later is sort of like, you know, were you just, you know, you know, sort of a person of your time and, you know, a person of sort of general left-leaning politics who is entertaining a lot of ideas or were you, you know, really sitting down with all these, you know, I, you know, like that's, 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 that's the, there's a bit of a mystery to it. Even, yeah. even if you write everyone's name down, you're like, this guy was a communist. This guy went to meetings. This guy had a card. This guy didn't have a card, you know? Well, I think it's telling that Bird is, Kai Bird is a historian who he's, you know, some of his other books are biographies of like Jimmy Carter, um, other figures in the American government that he's like, his contribution to this, you can really tell is like that, you know, using government documents to kind of tell a broader story part of it. And that Martin Sherwin, who passed away in 2021, like the most famous, like kind of revisionist historian of nuclear era in America. And I think it's very telling that none of them are like, you know, historians of communist, like communist Mm. organizing in the U.S. That 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 they're more interested in like the part of Robert. The thing that's the same thing that was like this sort of idealistic core that got him into, you know, giving money to the Spanish Civil War. Like that is like one of the most recurring moments in these kinds of stories across the nation is that like giving money for the Spanish Civil War was like this really galvanizing moment. Uh, that same urge to do something, whatever you can, is exactly where why he finds himself, you know, in Los Alamos building mm-hmm. a bomb, that that there is this like earnest, idealistic nature this ability to marshal people or like you like you have to like kind of like being in the meetings to really get involved in that. And that same impulse is there in both things. It's just that like he didn't go all the way with communism. He didn't become a spy, but he did go all the way as far as he really could with with the bomb. Yeah, I think that's about as far as you could go is actually physically <laughs> making the bomb. Yeah. Um, so the the Gene Tatlock connection with the communist ties, I think, is really important in the book. I imagine it's going to be very important in the movie. She's played by Florence Pugh. Um, I did think about Nolan's history of dead wives uh, in his movies <laughs> and how, um, you know, I, you see her in the trailer and she's like crying and looking distressed and like, you know, and again, David Sims knows for sure how this plays out. Don't want to know a ton, but I, she's a fascinating figure, like down to the way, fact that like people think the CIA killed her instead of it being a suicide. Um like, I just hope the movie can do right by her. Uh, are you guys all as fascinated by her as I am? Yes. Aaron absolutely. says yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. She's the she's the person in this book that I kind of I, I, I if I go read another book about these people, it will be about Jean Talock. <laughs> yeah. Yes. She seems generally worthy of deep, deep investigation, like in a way like, you know, she's she's such a transfixing figure in a passing way here. I think it's interesting that, you know, based on what I've heard, just that this is kind of that, you know, that there's there's nudity, that Gene Tatlock is sort of like the, you know, portrayed as like the big love of Robert's life. I I kind of like that. I'm glad that I knew that when I was rereading the book this time, because I feel like I didn't come out of it being like, oh, man, those those that was that's a great love story. But I am I think that the ways in which the book does feel kind of dry, like I get so frustrated with the way that they talk about Kitty, just like pretty much yes. the only character trait that she has is being a bad mom. <laughs> like, <laughs> or she or her sister-in-law thought she was a truly evil person. Which yes. uh, <laughs> <laughs> That was amazing. If somebody said that to me in an interview, I would have to put that in my book. I hope Jackie Oppenheimer gets to shine in this movie. She seems like a wild one. <laughs> They are both terrible parents. I think. I think. I <laughs> think uh, both book and book and film are, are pretty definitive on like these guys were not really built for parenting. Um, yeah. I yeah. I think it's a larger question of 
you know, coming away from this book, both Gene and, and Kitty are people that you'd want to read more about, which can speak to both the level of access you get to the main female characters, people in this book, and uh, a familiar refrain in Christopher Nolan movies and how <laughs> women are treated in those movies. Uh, so maybe inadvertently that was to your earlier question, Katie, uh, where I saw the Christopher Nolan movie in full here. <laughs> Well, the biographers are, accept the limits of what they can know. You know, Gene and Robert had this long-running relationship. We can't know a lot about what happened between them. I think it was, you know, his letters to someone else he was having an affair with were burned, but then Gene's letters were burned, so there's just a lot we don't know. And, like, we know Katie was unhappy, but they don't speculate about why she was unhappy. But a movie can do that. And I think the hope is that yep. you get some effort at speculating at getting into their heads about, you know, why they made the choices that they did. Yes. I, I don't, again, I don't really want to talk too much about it. I will say the film... The thing about the film regarding this book is just it somehow the entire book is in this film, which just doesn't <laughs> really <insane>. seem <laughs> possible. And obviously, the, the the very beginning of him is a very young man. There, you know, that's there's only a little bit of that. But he he has somehow just sort of taken on the thing of like, well, I just want to I want to cover everything, and so the film just feels very fast in a way, and you know, whereas reading the book is more much uh, this is a very methodical experience of like let me account for pretty much every tangible figure in his personal and academic life that we can get anything on like that we can get any kind of sort of understanding of what was their friendship how deep did it go and you know where was their conflict right you know and like so it's it's just interesting that the 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 film is very very faithful in a lot of ways, but also just you know has the opposite sense of pace because of the way it's telling the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah just to your earlier point about this being his world and his social life, and in the book you do get a real accounting of he had communist friends and these were people that he interacted with, and I think that feeling that the book gives you of this world of you know just this innovative competitive space is both very vivid and very detailed. And I think that's a real strength of the book. And I can imagine that being a little bit tougher to pull off in a movie where you are trying to still include everything, because the reason that you get that impression is because you understand the dynamics of a lot of these people. Yeah, and you get, like, there's kind of two halves of what I imagine is just going to be a parade of white guys in suits uh, in, <laughs> in the movie, uh, where you've got Los Alamos and, you know, his uh, world of physicists and then the um, Senate hearings and the stuff that happens in the 50s. And we'll get to Robert Downey Jr. and all that. But, you know, reading the book and seeing the characters that just come up over and over again, like the way that Matt Damon has been really promoted as like a co-lead of the movie really makes sense to me. Like, I think that Leslie Groves relationship, you know, he's the military head of Los Alamos. They like are so different, but they have this respect for each other. It's mm -hmm. so cinematic just the way that it comes across in the book. Um, you know, in, in terms of the Los Alamos figures, he, Groves really stands out, obviously. I have, a I have trouble figuring out which other scientists from that story feel like they ought to pop the most on screen. Well, I know who I want. And I, I really, I feel like the, the thing that I loved the most about reading this book is that, you know, everybody knows the like, I am death, destroyer of worlds line, but nobody ever told me that afterwards Ken Bainbridge you know, physicist of some repute was like, now aren't we all son of a bitches? <laughs> That's the best. And then they got Josh Peck to play him, which is really great. I'm looking forward to that. That Josh Peck in that role is is even if even if I don't get the line, even if I do not get the line, I will be just happy knowing, you know, I can imagine it in my head. That's going to happen next. Well, it is hugely helpful. And he's very wise to have done this that, you know, when reading the book, I often sort of had this feeling of like, look, I'm going to I'm going to retain as many names as I can, and I'm going to assume that some names can just kind of wash over me. Uh, and I yeah. think uh, Nolan wisely is sort of casting faces you recognize, even if they're not famous people, but even like a, a David Crumholtz or you know a Josh Peck or whatever, just so you're like, okay, yeah, he's that one, you know, like just, it's because it's really really mm -hmm. hard to keep track when reading this book, especially before the Manhattan Project begins, of who matters and who passed through kind of, you know, briefly, like in, you know, through his atmosphere. It's funny because when there was, when that casting rollout began and it became so overwhelming and frankly ridiculous, <laughs> and you're just like, what is Christopher Nolan doing here? And then reading the book, I completely understood it. <laughs> and so I'm glad to know that that also translates in the movie because it is a lot to keep track of. And obviously having a, a certain profile, take that face on, 
helps to track. <laughs> you could yes. almost kind of imagine him fan casting the movie like right. while he read the book <laughs> and then like went back and tried to get as many people as he could because I feel like that's yeah, it, especially like the, the Matt Damon as General Groves and even even just I think the genius of casting um, Killian Murphy, this like you know once kind of heartthrobby, but has now been in a lot of you know Peaky Blinders roles. I think is like it gets at the the uh, magnetic charisma of Robert that you might not necessarily mm-hmm. <laughs> get from the photos where he always looks like he's confused that his hat's not on his head when his hat's on his head. <laughs> <laughs> I love the recurring theme of like maybe it's in just one chapter where people are like, yeah, he was a weird guy, but people just loved him. Women especially. Like no one can put their finger on why he was so appealing to people, even people who knew him in real life. And I do I do feel like Killian Murphy has some of that to him. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Also for the Los Alamos people, I really uh, glommed on to uh, Richard Feynman, who becomes a very famous physicist, I think, and um, Hans Betha, Beth, uh, who kind of lingers throughout the story. Um, Feynman's played by Jack Quaid, and then Betha is Gustav Skarsgård, another Skarsgård who I'm yep. less familiar with. Um, and they had this like unlikely duo thing going on in the Los Alamos labs, and I just I hope some of that makes it in there because that felt like a. There's all these great little tiny human details in this book that you can just imagine leaping directly to the screen. Well, that's what's so crazy about the whole Los Alamos experiment that I think is captured in how Robert led it is that it is just they decided to they picked this this canyon. They were like, we're going to do a miniature society here where we're going to have a lot of fun while we're doing something that's probably one of the biggest, you know, scientific advances you could imagine at this time. But at the same time, we are, because of our training, our upbringing, our general approach, we are going to be completely unprepared to figure out how it's going to be used (laughs) and, like, advocate well for it. I think that that, that, like, dichotomy of, like, that that it could have only come from such an environment feels very clear, but at the same time, it is inherently doomed to be embarrassing for them all because of the environment and then the destruction that comes after I just on that topic, that's something I was so struck by in the book as you're sort of sifting through all this information and you're watching the Manhattan Project build up and it's pointed in one direction is you're like, to what extent are they are they thinking about where this is all going? And I think the book really captures and the movie captures too this this sense of like, they just weren't thinking about it that hard because it was such a race. It was such a, you know, we have to beat the Nazis. We have to do that, you know, like, and that disconnect obviously is so crucial to understanding the rest of Oppenheimer's life, right? Like how he felt about the consequences um, after the war. There was one thing in the book that really just surprised me and drove me totally crazy. And like, I feel bad for my partner for having to listen to me talk about this. I knew that Truman knew that the Japanese were looking for a settlement. I knew that Oppenheimer didn't know that. What I didn't know before this book was that they were still, despite not knowing any of that, they were arguing for dropping the bomb as like a display of openness. <laughs> like, ah, transparency. We got to right. do it. It's just, it is just like so, I mean, obviously it's easy for me to judge them from with the benefit of like 100 years of hindsight. But like it is, even at the time, I feel like that was like, a single historian could have sat them all down and been like, 
the hell are you talking about? <laughs> just just put do the math, guys. Like, where do you think this goes? <laughs> Have you looked at governments lately? You know. <laughs> well, yeah. Does that make you think? You know, so much of what happens Oppenheimer immediately after the war is him saying, "Okay, we dropped this one bomb, but like, let's put this all in the hands of international government. Like, we need cooperation. We need to actually cooperate with the Soviets." And he just hits a road at every turn, or hits a wall at every turn. Aaron, it sounds like you think he was totally naive to ever think that that was going to work. <laughs> I mean, and, and like, I mean, maybe it's that I come I come at this, you know, as the kind of person. Well, I mean, I, I, I kept on thinking about there's a history that kind of runs commensurate to this in a book that I really loved. It's called The Discovery of Global Warming by Spencer Wirt, who's a historian. And one of the things that he notes is that a lot of the people who were getting the same funding streams as Oppenheimer during the war, like their their research started revealing to them like, ooh, we're doing something really crazy to the planet, like planetarily. And this is like not great. But at every point in time, they it's like instead of sitting back and thinking like, oh, man, maybe we should be like trying to do something about the atmospheric like destruction we're wreaking, that the military industrial funding, it just makes it really hard to like the, the government, the government has its different ideas than the scientists do. It's inevitable. And that the scientists learn to shape knowledge in that way. That's very depressing. But yes, very appropriate. <laughs> it's really depressing. It is. <laughs> yeah. I got kind of sucked in by this idea of, an, of a different way the Cold War could have gone. Like if they had listened to him, if something had happened, we would not have had any of the nonsense that happened. And you sense his frustration of being like, look, guys, we're just you cannot build an H-bomb like it's just going to make things worse. And nobody listening to him and nobody listening to him. And like his reputation gets pretty quickly restored. Like by the 60s, he's kind of back into popular opinion. But like he knew he had this power, he had this platform, and yet it wasn't enough. It, it's enough to make you crazy. Yes. I just think that the book is correct. It's sort of like depicting the excitement that the Manhattan Project must have like been mm-hmm. sort of suffused yeah. in of like, we're on this, we made this campus, you know, with military money, basically, but still like, it's this like, we're all here and we're all bouncing off each other and there's nothing like this and we're all at the, you know, cutting edge of science and how that would, you know, how that would blind you from thinking about, you know, the consequences of the future or the 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 politics, the the, the real politic of like what what happens when you make the biggest bomb in the world, um, which just I think to the reader, it's such a crazy thing for us to overcome the idea that they weren't really thinking about this too hard, but you know, well, I think it's because it was such a quixotic quest in the first place. Like I, I really one. Thing that I do kind of love, uh, you know, is that there really is the moment where somebody, I can't remember who it is, that tells Robert, like, they think they've got fission. And and Robert's like, huh. that's impossible. And then he does some calculations on the blackboard and it's like, they're building a bomb. <laughs> like, <I'm laughs> really the camera that zooms that, in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that there is a sense in which, and this is why I'm, I think I'm really glad to hear that the Trinity explosion itself is all going to be practical effects because I think that there is this. There really is a sense that like they it didn't they didn't know they were going to be able to do it until they actually did it. And like that they volunteered to sort of sit through that explosion, I think, says a lot about the, you know, that 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 they didn't they weren't distant from it in any way. Yeah, Nolan has said, and I think this is in the trailer too, that the moment that sucked him in is when they like he realized that they didn't know if they would ignite the atmosphere and just like right. immediately end the entire world. Like they didn't know. Uh, and I, it sounds like the movie really <laughs> lingers on that uncertainty of it. Hmm. So to get into the post-war period, um, and then David Sims, you can tell me if I'm reading this right. My understanding is that you know you've got these kind of two show trials basically. First one is the 1954 security clearance hearing where Oppenheimer has his security clearance revoked, which is uh, in very great detail in the book. But then the second one is only a paragraph in the book where it's uh, Louis Strauss, who is um, you know his tormentor, who's played by Robert Downey Jr. in the movie. Um, Strauss, who is stra- he, oh, so stra- Strauss. he stresses in okay. the film. Well, it's a matter of he clearly was trying to. Uh, sound a little less Jewish is is the implication of the film, that he, he pronounced his name Strauss to sound sure. more American or whatever, and his a desire to assimilate or whatever. That fits with the character as presented in the book. Um, he's described in the book as pathologically ambitious, tenacious, and extraordinarily prickly. Amazing. <laughs> sure. Um, but it's his Commerce Secretary hearing in 1959 that he, he doesn't get approved, but partly because of the Oppenheimer trial, that I guess takes up a lot more of the movie than I would have guessed from reading the book. That's fascinating. 
Yes. I mean, it is sort of the, the theatrical or storytelling device by which we understand Louis Strauss's sort of side of the story. And it obviously sort of reaches back to his earlier tensions with Oppenheimer, which are well documented in America. Because like the latter half of American Prometheus is like, and then he just kept needling this one guy <laughs> and he didn't know how to leave it alone. Like, you know, he would always put a little too much mustard on it with this with this guy you obviously don't want to piss off. Yeah. That's Oppenheimer like pissing him off and like he can't help himself. Like he can't right. get out of his way. That sort of showy side that Oppenheimer had. But um but yes, no, it is it was to my surprise the the black and white sequences in Oppenheimer which are extensive, are centered nominally centered around this this hearing he had to become Commerce Secretary, which where he was voted down by the Senate, which was this sort of like, you know, humiliation for him. Partly because of JFK, who was a senator at the time, who they, I'm guessing... They, they, they point that out. Someone's playing they, JFK. Wouldn't have guessed uh, that either. I, oh, man, if I'm the actor who gets cast as JFK in, in, in Josh this Peck movie... Josh Peck as JFK. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, I would, I, would be, I would be very, very concerned for my life. Mm-hmm. I would be... <laughs> no pressure, dude. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for those of us who haven't seen uh, the movie, and I mean, Robert Downey Jr. as Straws, it, doesn't, it didn't feel like likely casting from having read the book, but that makes me kind of all the more fascinated about he captures this, like, truly, like, terrible figure in American history, it seems. It, it, it felt um, maybe not uh, likely to me, but, it you know, reading it, having the understanding he was playing him was, for me, a very enjoyable experience. <laughs> I think He's you have cast. a full understanding of him doing something that he hasn't at least gotten to do in a long time, uh, but also bring that charisma and... Um, you know, wiliness to to the yeah. part in a different if in a different kind of mode. I did want to talk a little bit about the security clearance hearing from before that, though. Just in terms of like, it's got to be what fifteen percent of the book. I mean, it's it's I think it was seventy pages, and it's amazing how it it's for me at least it stayed pretty propulsive. Um, mm-hmm. But that like was my number one huge question coming out of the book is what does this look like as a movie? Uh, especially since the the refrain that it is a lot of men talking in rooms has certainly been passed around over the past few days. <laughs> well, and I think the one thing about that that is so, you know, just knowing that that security clearance, like that is like a bugbear of any like nuclear scientist you talk to. Like mm. people, and so to the point that like even Kyber, the historian, like he has been part of a huge effort to get the government to rescind that decision. And they think they recently posthumously did it like a year ago or something. And Oh, decision for Oppenheimer specifically. Yeah, for huh. Oppenheimer specifically. That there's this this like, ah, they did our Robbie, they did our Oppie dirty has been like such a, a particular grievance of that community for such a long time. So I feel like I kind of loved for once getting an insight into why this is something that made people so mad. But at the same time, I think that you do kind of come around to like the this exact same thing was happening to a lot of people. And it's like, you know, now that we've seen it a lot of times, it's like it is a lot of men talking in rooms. But but I, I mean, yeah, I think that there's a way in which even the last 20 years, the like singularity of the like downfall of Oppenheimer, as we've been able to kind of recover more of the stories of the people who were, you know, taken down by HUAC, taken, you know, down by Cold War hysteria, Lavender Scare, all of these things, you know, now that we've got a lot more thorough accounting of J. Edgar Hoover and his sort of like extremely personal, extremely weird approaches to surveilling people, that it it does, you know, it's harder to, it, it feels more like, ah, this is one in, in a long litany of these things that we saw happening to a lot of people at the time. You know, it just now occurred to me that between this and Killers of the Flower Moon, we've got like J. Edgar Hoover adjacent stories where he's like sort of part of the story. But like there's 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 the part where like Strauss tries to get him to intervene in the security clearance hearing. And like Hoover for once is like, no, I think that's that's too far, which we didn't know that he was capable of. Good for you. Good for you. (laughs) Hoover is the hero this time, just like at the end of Being the Ricardos. Uh, I forgot about that. Never forget. (laughs) Um, I will never forget that no. moment. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe we can wrap up the conversation. We've, you know, this is a massive book. There are so much in there. Um, there are so many details that I just would like to see a little bit of, and maybe we can all go around. And David Sims, you can just pretend you don't know that it's in there. Um, 
I hope Katie Oppenheimer's crazy backstory yes. where her first husband dies in the Spanish Civil War and she's like a princess, maybe. Um, what a wild life she led. Like, I, I mean, we talked about how we want more from her character, but her backstory in particular, I think that was the moment where I was reading the book where I was like, oh, I'm in. Like, I'm whatever these people are going to do, I'm going to follow. They meet at the party. He yeah. has to send her. He has to call up her husband and be like, yeah. oh, she's pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Gotta do something about this. It's oh, crazy. great. Just such good stuff. And I love I loved the book didn't linger on that because it's clearly not the point of the book but i i love i love the moments where i'm like i would be writing a very different book yeah i mean they, they <laughs> i think the way they do it was like he walked off with another man's wife it's like yeah that's kind of, kind of what yep. happened yeah i mean definitely my hope for the movie is that you get a really rich sense of their life uh i mm. think emily blunt's a great choice there's this detail in the book about the parties that they throw, um, where they skimp on the food. Yeah, and I like, like the <laughs> entire paragraph. They like never ate. They just kept forgetting to eat. Yeah. The perfect, the perfect dry martini. He would he served the perfect part. That's that's the moment when I really was just like, no wonder. I I really I am Robert Oppenheimer I, in I, this I, way. I can spoil that you do briefly see Oppenheimer making his perfect martini. I was gonna say yes. you but you better. Yeah. You yes. better. Yes, with the lime and the honey or whatever it is. <laughs> but yeah, when you get to that detail, like with the food, you're like, wait, what? What? And as Aaron said, this is not the point of the book, so we're not lingering on this stuff. But I hope that those details, at least visually in some way, make it into the movie because they are um, they may, they give it that color and that spark and that that weirdness that I appreciated. Yeah, I just love I love this era of American history, like the 20s and 30s, like, you know, these people who were just lucky enough to kind of like not lose everything like they weren't getting dust bowled. Uh, and they're just off making great drinks and throwing crazy parties and becoming communists, maybe. And it's, <laughs> I'm just so like, I, I think that, you know, realizing that when I heard about Nolan doing Oppenheimer, I was a little like, OK. But then when I realized it was American Prometheus, which definitely is a great book about that for 200 pages, I knew that it was going to be a, a visual feast. <laughs> All right, David, since maybe pick a detail that just you can reveal is in the movie that you were especially gratified. Maybe it's the martinis. Uh, the martinis are nice to see. Honestly, the thing that's in the movie that is the most interesting, that's maybe even a sort of expanding on the book a little bit, is his relationship with Einstein. Not, mm-hmm. not like, not you know that there's the book, the movie is like obsessed with this, but just Einstein is this kind of like gravitational figure in their community that they both kind of worship, and also as the book gets into a lot, you know they feel like they're growing beyond, right? The sort of the old grandpa who's skeptical about, oh, I don't know about all this quantum mechanics and all this (laughs) chaos you guys are talking about and all that. And uh, he is a very interesting little figure that that the movie keeps kind of like swinging back around to for a minute. Yeah, it was interesting when they he showed up in the first trailer, and I think there was some post. It was like first look at Einstein and Oppenheimer, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> I mean, he does not. He at no point does he assemble a super team or you know, you know, <laughs> give give Oppenheimer some secret blueprints. He's just kind of like this this very interesting representation of like celebrity science and and yeah. you know how it can kind of leave you on an island, and it sort of did with Oppenheimer as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the 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 coolest part about the fact that they do pay, you know, some attention to the role that Oppenheimer did go on to play at IAS at Princeton, which is like still a place that's around and is like nurtured and fostered so many scholars. And it's like a really, you know, it's like fascinating place. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating (laughs) place. And like, you know, I think that I, I mean, I always come back to like that subtitle of like, you know, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And I think that there is a way in which like it's hard for me to see it as that tragic but at the same time, it captures so much about this period of America that that even is like something that we kind of call a tragedy. Well, there's a great Einstein quote in the book that I think ca- captures the tragedy. He says, the trouble with Oppenheimer is that he loves a woman who doesn't love him, the United States government. I hope that <laughs> that's why he's in the movie. That's why you need Einstein to tell this story. He's this this wise perspective, you know, embittered, but wise. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like all of us, maybe except for Aaron, who reads giant history books all the time, are, um, I-, I feel like an unlikely fan of this book, and I've recommended it to multiple Same. people. Um, but I think, you know, either before, I mean, probably at this point, it's too late to read the whole thing before you see the movie. But I, I would imagine it's great reading after you see it um, for all the detail you can get into. Definitely. It's a perfect beach read. 
I think after after seeing the film, it actually could be a very good way to sort of untangle or stretch out, you know, everything you just witnessed, right? Like be like, okay, okay, let me let me delve into this in a in a slower sense. The the movie is the fissile material. Yes. The book <laughs> is the explosion. <laughs> <laughs> So you're making it sound like you understand uh, nuclear physics better from reading the book. That I feel like I got just enough, and yeah, that was they, that's funny. They make you in in New Mexico, like in the in the acknowledgments for this. They thank the uh, Atomic Museum for all the help that they did, and it's like, buddy, I went to the Atomic Museum every single year. We went to San Ildefonso. I've been to Los Alamos many a time. It's you know these are these are my haunts. These are I've I've you know I've never been to Pedro Caliente before, but I've. Maybe that's next. Maybe that's next. Um, Well, thank you all for talking about this book with me. This was such a treat. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, find us on VanityFair.com. We'll have lots of coverage of Oppenheimer and Barbie and The Strike, of course. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of the glamour of podcasting goes to Richard Lawson. A lot of people talking in rooms. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.